we are going to get into part two of part three <laughs> of generosity today because I ran out of time last week. But uh, you might recall that if we go way back to the beginning of the month of February, Mark Correa was our, our guest our teacher that day and uh, we had an extended communion message which really focused on the generosity of God, the, the generosity in our Heavenly Father that led Him to give up His Son that we might be saved. And uh, one of the themes that ran through Mark's message was that communion is a celebration of what Jesus did for us a celebration of the generosity of God that led him to give his son that we might have eternal life. After that, we spent a, a weekend, we spent a, a Sunday morning looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, which is widely regarded as the, the most complete discussion of giving for a special purpose uh, in the Word of God. And of course, uh, Paul was writing there about generosity based on a decision of the heart, generosity towards Christians who were suffering at that time. The following week, we moved on to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, that I suggested was an appropriate basis for developing our thinking about supporting the local church. And of course, whenever a discussion about support of the local church comes up, at least in the evangelical, charismatic, Pentecostal world, we have questions about tithing. Uh, last week, I focused on tithing as it's described in the Old Testament. So we heard about Abraham tithing to Melchizedek, and we'll come back to that today. We heard about Jacob doing a deal with God. If you bless me, if you look after me, then I'll give you a tenth of everything that you give me. That was the deal that Jacob did. We looked at the law of tithing, according to the law of Moses. We saw that there were two tithes, possibly three. The first tithe was... 10% of the increase of the land, of the, the produce of the animals that were born in a particular year, 10% of that was to be given over to the Levites because they, under the law, were not able to own any land. And so the tithe to the Levites became their inheritance. And their inheritance, of course, was different to the inheritance of all the other tribes. The Levites were themselves commanded to give 10% of what they received to the priests. And the priests were allowed to eat that. Uh, the second tithe was a tithe that was built around the annual feasts. It was a tithe to cover the costs for you, for your family, for your whole household, including your animals, to travel to the appointed place to join in the feast. Then there was the third tithe. Some people think that was the first tithe 
applied in the third year. Other people say it was a separate tithe altogether. The third tithe was a tithe which was to sustain the Levites in the local community and the poor, the orphans, the foreigners, the widows. And we also mentioned that there was another law concerning first fruits and the, the first fruits of uh, your crop, the first fruits of your animals, that also was to be given over to the Lord. So there's a fair bit about tithing in the Old Testament. One thing we know for sure and certain is that Israel didn't do it consistently. And uh, the prophets from time to time pointed out that Israel was not actually living according to the laws that God had given them. What I want to do today is to focus on tithing as it's represented in the New Testament. There are really two main references. One is in uh, Matthew 23, verse 23. And uh, this is often uh, quoted and is used as evidence that a tithing is indeed for the Christian church. It is indeed a New Testament thing. I'm actually going to read a portion of the, of the chapter because I, I, I want you to understand the context and the environment in which Jesus actually made the comment uh, as a reference to tithing. You will know that the priests had a history of not fulfilling their role properly. They fell into the sin of greed, if you like, a, an ancient form of consumerism where they wanted to be the most noted people in their communities. They held wealth of their own and to themselves and ignored the poor. They burdened the people with hundreds and hundreds of additional laws. By the time we get to the life of Jesus on earth, the average Jew was oppressed not only by Rome, but also by their own priestly class. And yet they were hypocrites because they didn't practice what they preached. And far from being Jesus meek and mild, he unleashes a tirade of criticism at the scribes and the Pharisees. I would like to read the whole chapter. I won't, because we won't really have time. I do want to read a fair portion of it, though, starting from verse 13. I'm using the Passion Translation, because I think it uses a language that we can readily access, that we can readily understand. 
So I'm reading from verse 13 of Matthew 23, right up to the end. So you picture it here, there's a crowd, and in that crowd are a lot of the scribes and the Pharisees, the lawyers, those who lorded it over the people. And there are also ordinary people in the crowd, the disciples of Jesus were with him as well. And Jesus announces seven woes or sorrows in the context of the scribes and the Pharisees. This is what he says. Great sorrow awaits you religious scholars and you Pharisees, such frauds and pretenders. You do all you can to keep people from experiencing the reality of heaven's kingdom realm. Not only do you refuse to enter in, you also forbid anyone else from entering in. Great sorrow awaits you, religious scholars and you Pharisees, frauds and pretenders. For you eat up the widow's household and the ladle of your prayers. Oh, sorry, with the ladle of your prayers. Because of this, you will receive a greater judgment. Great sorrow awaits you religious scholars and you Pharisees, such frauds and pretenders. For you will travel over lake and land to find one disciple, only to make him twice the child of hell as yourselves. You blind guides, great sorrow awaits you, for you teach that there's nothing binding when you swear by God's temple. But if you swear by the gold of the temple, you are bound by your oath. You are deceived in your blindness. Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? Do you say that whoever takes an oath by swearing by the altar, it's nothing. But if you swear by the gift upon the altar, then you are obligated to keep your oath. Right? They had a system of promises that you didn't have to keep and promises that you did have to. What deception! For what is greater, the gift on the altar that make sorry, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Whoever swears by the altar swears by the altar and everything offered on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and the one who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by God who sits upon it. Great sorrow awaits you, religious scholars and Pharisees, frauds and pretenders. You are obsessed with peripheral issues, like insisting on paying meticulous tithes on the smallest herbs that grow in your gardens. These matters are fine, yet you ignore the most important duty of all, to walk in the love of God, to display mercy to others, and to live with integrity. Readjust your values and place first things first. What blind guides, nitpickers, you will spoon out a gnat from your drink, yet at the same time you've gulped down a camel without realising it. Great sorrow awaits you, religious scholars and Pharisees, frauds and pretenders. You are like the one who will only wipe clean the outside of a cup or bowl leaving the inside filthy. 
You are foolish to ignore the greed and self-indulgence that live like germs within you. You are blind and deaf to your evil. Shouldn't the one who cleans the outside also be concerned with cleaning the inside? You need to have more than clean dishes. You need clean hearts. Great sorrow awaits you, religious scholars and Pharisees, frauds and pretenders. You are nothing more than tombs painted with fresh coats of white paint. Tombs that look shining and beautiful on the outside, but within are found decaying corpses, full of nothing but corruption. Outwardly you masquerade as righteous people, but inside your heart you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Great sorrow awaits you religious scholars and Pharisees, frauds and pretenders. You build memorials for the prophets of your ancestors killed and decorate the monuments of the godly people your ancestors murdered. Then you boast, if we had lived back then, we would never have permitted them to kill the prophets. But your words and deeds testify that you were just like them and prove that you are indeed the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead and finish what your ancestors started. You are nothing but snakes in the grass, the offspring of poisonous vipers. How will you escape the judgment of hell if you refuse to turn in repentance? For this reason, I will send you more prophets and wise men and teachers of truth. Some you will crucify, and some you will beat mercilessly with whips in your meeting houses, abusing and persecuting them from city to city. As your penalty, you will be held responsible for the righteous blood spilled and the murders of every godly person throughout your history. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Jehoiada, whom you killed as he stood in the temple between the brazen altar and the holy place. I tell you the truth, the judgment for all these things will fall upon this generation. My point in that is to place the comment that Jesus made about tithes in context. This was not about tithing. This was about the priestly class oppressing the people they were supposed to serve. This is about the priestly class being outwardly righteous but inwardly full of sin. This is about a class of people who like everybody to notice them in their finery. A little earlier in the, in the chapter, Jesus accuses them of wanting to sit on the Moses seat. And it was a, a seat, it was the, the highest seat, as it were, in the temple. He accuses them of using, you know, flash loud prayers so that everybody would hear them. But yet, they had no heart for the poor and the needy. Jesus was acknowledging their system of law. Yes, you've got your system of law. Obey it. 
But don't forget that all the law and the prophets were built on the love and the mercy of God. In fact, when Jesus was asked by the lawyer, what is the greatest commandment? And he responds, love God, love your neighbor as you love yourself. He was merely quoted from the book of the law. Even back then, when the Mosaic law was written down, God made it very clear that the basis for the law was love for him and love for one another. The basis for the law and the basis for grace are identical. Love God. Love one another. So here we have the priests, the lawyers, the religious leaders. They had a strainer in their cup, lest an insect or some impurity accidentally be drunk. And the reason he alluded to them actually swallowing a camel, which of course would kill you, right? The, the Aramaic word for gnat and camel are very similar. There's only one letter difference. So Jesus was playing on words, but he was making a point. You go to such lengths to get your tithes right, but you've forgotten love. You've forgotten what matters the most. I believe that this is the point that Jesus was making. He wasn't saying you should tithe. He actually said to the people, you do as they say, don't do as they do. So Jesus wasn't saying ignore the law because the law operated at that time. But he said, don't follow their behaviour because their hearts are not right. If you want to get all technical about it, really, the comment that Jesus made about ties was almost a, throw a, a throwaway line because his big point was the seven woes or the, the seven sorrows as it's translated in the Passion translation. The point that Jesus was making was that the leaders of the day who should have been the servants of the people were instead oppressors of the people. If you want to get a bit theological, we could argue about when the old covenant was done away with and the new covenant actually started. There's a, a, a comment made by Jesus in Luke 16, 16, where he says that the law applied until John so, perhaps one could argue that the law applied until John the Baptist invited people to repent and to be baptised. And one might argue that those who responded, including Jesus, upon their baptism, were no longer subject uh, to the law. But as far as we know, that the scribes and the Pharisees, the, the priestly class, they didn't come on mass down to the Jordan River and accept the invitation to repent and to be baptised. So they were still subject to law. 
was the new covenant inaugurated when Jesus said from the cross it is finished when he had fulfilled his purpose which was of course to fulfill all the law and the prophets was the new covenant ushered in by the infilling of the Holy Spirit for the apostles as recorded in the book of Acts there could be some argument but one thing we cannot argue about is that the people to whom Jesus was speaking were living under law either because the Old Testament law the Old Covenant hadn't yet been superseded or because they had chosen to So I would say that apart from the fact that when you look at the whole context of this long, long, critical diatribe, when you look at the whole context, it wasn't about tithing. It was about hearts. And why should we be surprised about that? Because Jesus is interested in what our hearts are like. So let me turn to the second area in which uh, tithes are discussed in the, in the New Testament. And again, I, I've heard Hebrews 7 quoted many, many times by people who are, um, if you like, supporters of modern-day tithing. I won't read that whole chapter out. We've had enough drama one morning. <laughs> I'd like to um, do it all in character one day. And be so good. But anyway. <laughs> you, you think that's funny, Antonio? <laughs> you laughed. <laughs> I wanted to be an actor when I was a kid. <laughs> My mother said, no, you can't do that because you'd never be able to earn a living. <laughs> so I became an economist instead. <laughs> Anyway, well, you know, university lecturing is as much about performance as it is about anything else. Well, there is quite a long discussion in Hebrews which also brings up the topic of tithing. Again, I think we have to have a look at the context. So the context here is that the writer of Hebrews is explaining the new covenant. And is actually explaining that we no longer rely on the Levitical priesthood for our relationship with God. And the argument goes along the lines that Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. Melchizedek was not a Levite because he lived long before the whole tribe was established so you see Melchizedek it says in Hebrews 7 he was not of the Levitical order and because we don't find any kind of ancestry mentioned in the Bible in relation to Melchizedek and because his earthly death is never recorded the writer of Hebrews says he was something special he was something different he was a king and a priest. And he was the one to whom Abraham tithed. 
there are some references to all of the children of Abraham, and in this case it's literal children, I think, not, not spiritual children as we are, but literal children of Abraham, effectively having paid tithes to Melchizedek through Abraham. And then the argument moves on to suggest that Jesus is a better priest than Melchizedek. Jesus, of course, came through the line of David, not a Levite. Jesus and Melchizedek, according to the writer of Hebrews, are of the same class, both kings and priests. It is this king and priest, Jesus, who has brought about the new covenant, the covenant of grace. Jesus is a better priest who comes not according to the law of fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. The discussion goes on to point out that the law is inferior to the word of oath, as it's uh, written in the New King James Version, which actually means grace. Because high priests have weaknesses, and we certainly saw that in Matthew 23. But the Son of God has been perfected forever because He fulfilled all the law and the prophets. The writer of Hebrews goes on to emphasise that grace is better than the law. Again, I would suggest that the point of this passage is not tithing. Tithing is, in a sense, incidental to the main point. The main point is that Jesus was like Melchizedek in the sense that he was both king and priest and neither of them were Levites. We access God's throne. We come into his presence through Jesus Christ as superior, not through the Levitical priesthood. That's the point that I believe is made in Hebrews. I do want to ask you to bear with me a little bit longer because I don't want to leave it here. Probably 80-90% of evangelical, charismatic and Pentecostal churches teach tithing as doctrine, teach it as the norm, but as we've seen, in fact, hardly anybody tithes 10%. We saw last week that most likely the resurgence of a doctrine of tithing after 1873 in the United States and then spreading out to other countries was more a pragmatic response to the difficult financial times that the church was experiencing. At that time there was a significant economic depression in most of Europe and in the United States. And uh, by the early 1830s, there was no direct government support for churches in the United States either. So they were looking around for a basis for improving their financial status. Tithing these days, of course, is normally taught as 10% of your income. 
and it's all income, including social welfare payments. It's a bit different to the first tithe. I guess many would argue, well, we're not, we're not, we don't require the second tithe because we're not subject to all the feasts under the law. We're not subject to the ceremony under the law. Others might argue too that the tithe of the third year is now incorporated into the tax we pay, which finances all the social welfare that government provides. And so most would say today that the first tithe, that Levitical tithe, actually belongs to the local church and it should come from your income. It's easier in America than it is in Australia because, as I think I've mentioned before, in America your tithe is tax deductible and in Australia it isn't. So in a sense, a 10% tithe hurts more in Australia than it does in the United States. So what's wrong with tithing? What's wrong with tithing? Ben and I have tied ever since we were born, born, born again again in uh, 1989. Unless it becomes religious work. The moment you feel an obligation to tithe, it's become a religious work. We teach at Ignite Life Church that generosity is as natural as breathing to the Christian. And the reason why we teach that is that Jesus himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And the other reason is that we're made in the image of God and God is generous, as Mark Correa pointed out a few weeks ago. And if we're truly made in his image, then to become what I call fully fulfilled as a Christian, we need to be generous in thought, in word, and in deed, which includes our wallets and purses. As you know, when we were planting Ignite Life Church, David, Ainsley, Jeanette and I, we talked at length about what our attitude towards uh, giving and, and tithing would be and uh, we following the practice of a few other churches decided that we'd put our tithes and offering box at the back of the church and we wouldn't have a, a special time set aside in each of our connect times to talk specifically about tithing and offering. Our preference is to teach about it at length every now and then, it probably means every two or three years. I'm not arguing that nobody should tithe because that makes me just as bad as those who try to force it on other people. There's nothing wrong with tithing unless it becomes religious work. See, there's nothing wrong with anything unless it becomes religious work because then it becomes a burden. And God never intended our time as community to be I'm going to leave it there. I want to wrap it up next week. I actually want to focus on